and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. Well, I'm just back from the Maryland Five Star in the US, more on that later, and I hope that you're all enjoying the start of autumn here in Britain. It feels like the nights are starting to draw in, I bet a lot of horses have had their first clip of the year now. Our interview on this week's podcast is with dressage Olympian and recent world championship silver medalist Richard Davison. He talks about his experiences riding a homebred horse at that world's in Herning. I've never been emotional in a media uh, interview before and actually I hope I don't have to be again and I wasn't really expecting it. It took me by surprise that did. I'll then be chatting to our news team about double bridles in dressage, raising young horses and noseband tightness. Plus, we'll review that Maryland five-star. Finally, veterinary equine behaviourist Dr Gemma Pearson talks about classical conditioning. A lot of natural horsemanship is based on classical conditioning. And we often talk about this invisible connection, this harmony between horse and rider, whereby the horse appears to know what's in the rider's mind without anyone being able to see it visually. So, as always, we've plenty to talk about. Brush out that mane and let's get started. Hello, I'm Lucy Elder, Senior News Writer at Horse and Hound, and I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast today by Richard Davison. Richard's an elite British dressage rider, four-time Olympian who's been at the forefront of international equestrian sport for more than 30 years. He's represented Britain at four European Championships, two World Equestrian Games and four Olympics. And most recently, he was a member of the silver medal winning British team at the World Dressage Championships in Herning, riding his homebred bubbling. Hi, Richard. How are you doing? Good morning, Lucy. I'm doing absolutely uh, splendidly. Thank you. Lovely morning here in Staffordshire. Perfect. It is beautiful, isn't it? Beautiful autumn morning here as well where I am. Yeah, no, it's lovely. Got a few horses ridden, so um, just interrupted the riding, got a cup of coffee and looking forward to chatting with you. Excellent. Talking of chatting, let's start by talking about the World Championships this year. It was your first championship appearance since London 2012 and you were selected for this year's team on your homebred gelding, Bubbling, and I know you were quite emotional after completing your test. What did it mean to you, first of all, to be on a team with this horse? Well, actually, the whole thing was really special because um, I think at my age, uh, you don't, well, I didn't really expect to be on another championship uh, team again. Um, So the fact that I even made it onto the team was, you know, know, it it was really special for me. And for everybody else that, you know, put so much work into the, the horses here, uh, obviously, I'm I'm busy on the international circuit, so I do a lot of international shows, and that means that uh, not only my travelling groom has to put a lot of work into that, but everybody has to look off the place here. So when you get selected for a, a, a championship team, it, it means a lot to everybody. Um, so, and I'm very conscious of that, and uh, and so I suppose that that was the first thing that it was a huge bonus for me to be to even be there um and then it's true actually i've never been emotional in a in a media uh, interview before and actually i hope i don't have to be again um and i wasn't really expecting it and i can't really remember the even the question that triggered the emotion off but it really uh, took me by surprise that did I think it was, you know, basically about having bread bubbling, um, mm. which which is something actually I don't. Lots of people ask me about that, and it's not something on a daily basis that I I even think about until people ask me about it. You know, I I, I suppose I just take each horse on its own merits, its strengths, its weaknesses, what it's mm. good for, and the right job. And uh, I mean, some somebody's bred all of them, haven't they? Really, so. But he is, I mean, he was the son of the mayor that you rode at in Hereth, is that right, in 2002? Yeah, and actually, you know, when you put it like that, I think that was the whole business of actually why I did become suddenly rather emotional. I, I mean, don't get me wrong, you know, I didn't burst out of tears to throw myself to the ground, but suddenly it triggered something which made me realise what an, a very long journey this uh, has been, and a really lovely journey. 
Um, because as you said, you know, I, I rode his mother, Balazair Royale. And, um, and I suppose the other thing is, you know, bubbling hasn't, he hasn't been an easy horse. He's, he's quite an insecure horse and a nervous horse, but he's a very talented horse. Um, and so the whole journey with bubbling has, we've all worked very hard, not just me, but my, especially my traveling groom spends a lot of time with him in the stables and leading him around showgrounds and everything. Yeah. And I suppose it is that sort of when you just look at the length of the whole journey, really, and, and there's a you know, special story behind um, Bubbling's owner, Gwendolyn Sontine, who lives in the States, and she also owned the, the mother, Balazair Royale. So, yeah, there's a lot of people been, you know, on the shared journey together. Yeah, and I guess that touches on when you were talking about emotion there, and it is when it comes down to it, all about people and all about horses really isn't it sport and that journey yeah it, it absolutely is about people I and mean, it's it's interesting you should say that because often when uh, I'm doing groups and talks to young professionals and we're talking about their career ahead of them uh, you know everybody sort of says they want to work with horses they love working with horses they don't want to do anything different it's all about horses but my experience having been in it for a, a long time is actually yes it's about horses but it's more about the people because without the people first of all you don't have horses you don't have special owners um or sponsors and you also if unless you forge those and, and value those relationships you know you're not going to get your farrier out at four o'clock in the morning when the horse is lots of shoe right. you've got to leave for the show at six o'clock or the vet at late at night and and so on and uh, uh, you might get you might get the, the vets out um but if you want full commitment and full buy-in then you've also you've got to give something that makes that relationship and uh, definitely anybody thinking going into this industry you know as a career you've you've got to value the people side of it not just the horses and you mentioned there as well, I mean, how pivotal your groom is and things. Tell me a little bit about the relationship that they have with, with the horse and how kind of crucial that was. We talked about the whole journey, but at Herning in particular. Well, I mean, I've been very lucky to have had um, two or three very long term uh, traveling show grooms. And they've always, you know, I've always completely trusted them with driving the horses and traveling the horses to the shows ab abroad anywhere around the world and um i have the easy bit of jumping on an airplane <laughs> and turning up <laughs> at the showground uh actually i remember a long time ago you know traveling hanging around airports as everybody knows can be rather boring and tiring sounds a lovely life but actually it's, it can be very monotonous and when i used to arrive uh at the show having you know flown and then been picked up by a show one of the shuttle cars from the show and sort of yawning and saying oh it's been such a long day the looks i've had from my traveling <laughs> groups when uh, so i stopped myself saying that a long time ago because they've been driving for two or three days and doing yeah. all that really hard work yeah so first of all there is a special relationship with any well, with any groom at all, because it doesn't matter whether the home grooms or the traveling grooms, the show grooms, you know, p people like me, we trust, we, we entirely trust all our hard work in, in terms of the horse with them to look after it, to spend hours with it, to feed it, to give the right supplements, to notice when it's, you know, feeling well or unwell or when something's a bit off color. So, it's a massive trust that we put into our, in, into our grooms and that's why they're, they're so important, they're so critical. And my current travelling groom, Heidi Tronasek, who's been with me, I, I can't even remember how many years she's been with me a long time. Um, she's a delightful character. Most people know her on the circuit, which is very handy for me because all the stable managers at the shows know her and everybody knows her. So we get often a very nice stable allocated to her to thank thanks to her and um she's a very caring person and she's very caring to bubbling and has supported uh, apart from doing all you know all the 
sort of responsibility, if you like, in the stable side of things and the traveling side of things. She supported my training and development of him um, from the ground. So she will walk bubbling out several times a, a day at a show obviously on a, on a on a head collar but not just to give him grass and get the sunshine which is what everybody should do with their horses when mm. they're stable at shows but to help his training so that he learns to stand still he's got a very big flight instinct bubbling so when you're walking him around on a showground a big showground i'm talking about now with lots of people and lots of noise and everything his flight instinct can be triggered and when flight instincts are triggered horses move their legs very fast so she trains him to deal with what would be a trigger of flight the flapping flags or the noise the loud music across the showground but actually to keep his legs still and um if anybody's interested in that and i'm sure they can look that up from you know sort of groundwork it's called uh, but she does that and and it's very important. It's very helpful and critical to his performance at shows. That's fascinating. And that's something that you just wouldn't see as a spectator, just watching kind of the finished article. And, you know, we hear so much about how important teams are and how important grooms are. But when you put it like that and how directly they have an impact um, on on performance, it's really fascinating to hear. Yeah, and, you know, it's obviously, it's all about, the cognition of the horse and what's going on inside their head so you'll often see Heidi maybe if the organizers let me she will come into a prize giving with the horse or at least the beginning of the prize giving and that isn't that isn't because I need the horse held on because I might fall off touch wood um <laughs> it's not for that it's because there's therefore a, a mental association with the horse that with her alongside and on on the ground because she's done so much groundwork with the horse that where you it's very scary a prize a big prize giving uh, mm. especially indoor ones to horses uh, because of the noise the noise from the people the applause the spotlights everything and so that is what you know the role that she's doing there or likewise in sometimes in the when we're allowed to train in the main arena she will lead bubbling around the arena rather than me ride him uh, so she's putting him in that atmosphere but there's the association with her on the ground and with him and you know that's why it's a, a, a very holistic job really developing a competition horse but it, it's all about what's going on inside the horse's mind really yeah and going back to Bubbling in particular and his dam and a little bit about what we were talking about at the start of this conversation. Can you can you see the sort of family traits and resemblances there? Are they quite similar? Are there differences? What what's it like being like riding riding the pair? Um, there's not really so much a physical uh, similarity because there isn't. Um, mm. I mean, maybe you could say they both had big ears, and um, <laughs> but so so not particularly. But uh, Balazar Royale also she was a very strong character, and she actually also could react not so much when when I was doing the test, but in prize givings, it was uh, always quite a dangerous job because I think uh, she had she was very sharp, and so my worst moments with her in a prize giving were when they asked everybody to stand up for to play a national anthem and everybody stood up and their seats used to flip and make a noise <laughs> she would i wouldn't know which way she was going to spin she'd spin left and right oh sometimes both and very quickly bearing in mind as a as a bloke i have to take my hat off for national anthems so you're you know trying to hold your hat one-handed hang on to the reins and sort of do something which probably was more like a western spin <laughs> um and not fall off so she she had those traits but she was a very secure horse and there were very clear boundaries perhaps being a mare they always say that <laughs> you ask a mare you don't tell a mare and i learned that about her quite early on yeah and talking about your career as well of course you 
been to so many championships. We we mentioned those at the start. Do you have any sort of particular standout memories or memorable moments from from those championships? Um, well, I to be honest, I've valued them all. I mean, I have to say, earning was a very different championship for me and a very, very enjoyable one, as I've already said, not least because I wasn't really expecting to be there. But, you know, we had the other three combinations were so strong. Um, And if I, you know, go back in time to, I don't know, 30 odd years ago, I, I can't even remember now, you know, riding the early championships when it, it would sort of be a little bit down to often down to, to my horse being the stronger horse. So it, it was almost slightly on me. Uh, it was absolutely the opposite. Um, in Herning, I knew those others were going to just really deliver. And so I could really enjoy myself. And it was very nice because Jill, my wife, came and for a lot of the shows or even the championships, to be honest, you know, she hasn't always been able to get there. And my eldest son, who's based is based over in Florida, is a show jumping trainer. He happened to just be over in Europe at the time. So that was a really nice a really enjoyable sort of family moment for me at the championships at Herning. Uh, obviously, London at the Olympic Games was totally incredible. But then, you know, and it, it doesn't always boil down to the success. I I think for those of us that went to Sydney, well, I you know Carl Hester and I often chat about this. We actually found Sydney to be a really lovely Olympic Games, and we, although it wasn't very, it wasn't at all successful. Actually, uh, it was really enjoyable and and inspirational. And what was it about Sydney that made it so enjoyable, so inspirational? First of all, I think I, I really love the, the Aussies' attitude to everything and especially mm. sport. You know, they're immensely competitive, but once the competition's over, it's all very laid back and everybody's incredibly friendly. And yeah. and that that was the sort of similarity, if you like, with London, that that everybody to do with the games and the games makers uh you know all the volunteers were were incredibly friendly everywhere you know you went just as in london people were wishing you well you know if you wanted to a restaurant you could get the if there wasn't a spare table they'd always just make a table for you and i mean you know i I mean difficult to pinpoint exactly but but just great combination really of, of really good sport good sporting attitude and very friendly people yeah, comes back to people again, what we were talking about at the start, doesn't it? Yeah, dead right, it does. And so looking ahead now, what's what's next on the cards for you and Bubbling? Oh, well, what's next is definitely uh, the London International Horse Show at XL. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, so, uh, so definitely doing that. And I will, I haven't actually pinpointed a, a, a show uh, yet, but I'll definitely take him abroad to a big show before going to London. And then I haven't actually worked out my show ground. I've been show plan after London. I've been, for the first time in my life, incredibly relaxed about deciding on on what shows we do. So, so yeah, I've got to work out a plan for him and he'll do a few shows, you know, next spring and then we'll see. And I'm I right in saying you're on the committee for the London uh, International Horse Show as well, Richard? Yes, I am on the committee and uh, since it's started, well, um, I've sort of been the sort of technical advisor, if you like. In fact, before the World Cup show even started, we had a, a couple of pilot runs. And again, I, you know, I'm i hopeless on years and dates and things for obvious reasons. I think it's better at my age to forget about those sort of things. But um, we have been running it for quite a long time now there. Um, yeah, and it's a great show, and I love being part of that. I I, I very much am uh, aligned with Simon Brooks Ward, the organizer, with his uh, endeavours to really make dressage, and especially the Grand Prix side of dressage, not so much the music because that is mm. enjoyable for everything, but to make the Grand Prix more appealing and more attractive to watch, not just for the hardcore dressage enthusiasts who are important but also Mm -hmm. maybe for their partners or family members 
to come along and watch it and so they can all you know have a nice time and it can become more of a family viewing as opposed to just just as i said the hardcore dressage fanatics and Richard, you were quite involved in bringing the short Grand Prix to the World Cup series, which we saw at London International last year. That's right. I mean, um, <laughs> many of my uh, international colleagues uh, got a bit excited about having a short Grand Prix for the World Cup series until uh, I reminded them that we've had a short Grand Prix for, I don't know, 17 years in the, short <laughs> in the, in the World Cup series. Because yeah. the the Grand Prix competition is um, basically a qualifying class. Uh, the, the, the the main feature class of that World Cup series is the dressage, the music, the freestyle. Mm. So before you can ride in the freestyle, you have to come in the top 15 of the Grand Prix class. So the Grand Prix acts as a qualifying class. And obviously all in the outdoor seasons and for the championships, horses have to do the same very intense long grand prix so my rationale is as it's only a qualifying class and doesn't count for anything certainly not world cup points why do we need to keep going to the well with these horses why can't we just give them a well a slightly easier uh, I don't mean easier in intensity or degree of difficulty, but not as long and not as repetitive in some of the difficult movements. And, you know, this is nothing new. This is, we, We've done a short Grand Prix for the World Cup Series for more than we've ever done a long Grand Prix. And in fact, the under 25 Grand Prix was always the one we, we used to do for World Cups. So that's it's still in existence, been allocated mm. to the under 25. But, you know, change... Dressage riders and the dressage community are traditionalists, and I understand that. Um, and change isn't always accepted or easy. Um, and so, what I suggest is we go back to another short Grand Prix again. I, I um, have nothing to do with the composition of the test because that wouldn't be right for I don't believe for a rider to compose the test, especially when I'm competing in it but or, or I'm, it's just the basic principle of it so i don't have a view on whether it flows it doesn't flow um it's difficult or too difficult basically somebody has to write the test and i have to write it and that's the same for all of us and we can always make tests better uh and that's what we should be doing it shouldn't be set in stone uh at fei level and um so that's my idea. Basically, on a welfare ground, my argument is why in the long Grand Prix, we have to ride three extended trots, for example, and three PFs. But it's the same for everybody. Why do you have to ride three? Why not ride one and, and just stand on the marks you get or you don't get for that movement? Mm -hmm. um, it's a competition after all. And everybody likes to repeat things because you might do the next one slightly better. But that, I don't know why we should have to do that all the time with these top horses. And uh, so that that's my rationale. And I think what people forget is when you have a repetitive movement in a dressage test, it doesn't really matter what level it is, but that becomes, that carries quite a lot of points mathematically on the result. So it's understandable that riders, for example, if a horse isn't, particularly talented in one of those repetitive movements it's understandable that riders in the warm-up and in the training focus on that a lot because they want to optimize the horse's mo movement or performance in that mm. well when you look at a, an extended trot for example and you look at the horse throwing its legs forward don't don't look at those look at the legs that the horse is standing on while the other legs are in the air the, in the stance phase and in that stance phase that's prolonged a horse is loading its tendons and its ligaments for stability and the load and the force upward ground force going up through that leg at that time is extreme and if you want to keep keep horses mentally uh, happy or, or content and also physically that they last and, and, and they have longevity in their career then you need to be loading those that stamp phase as less 
as possible, basically. That's that's my rationale. I hope I've explained that correctly. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's, it's so interesting, isn't it? When you see something as from an outsider as simple as a um, you know a change in time of a dressage test itself and actually the thought process and the workings that have gone into that and the rationale behind it I think that's I think that's really interesting so we'll be seeing the short Grand Prix again at London this year is that right uh, yeah well actually yeah. Um, because it caused a bit of excitement with amongst international dressage riders um, the, the short Grand Prix we had a big meeting in Germany and we I thought we left that meeting, that was a couple of years ago, but we all agreed uh, that it would be down to the organiser if they wanted to put it in, you know, peak time to use a short Grand Prix or a long Grand Prix. It depends on their, how much time they've got in their show schedule. But obviously when you fit these classes in to show jumping classes and lots of other classes the arena main arena time is quite precious so we left it optional and then lo and behold a year later i was just reading the rules and um the fei decided to make it mandatory for european shows so there's no discussion anymore every world cup qualifiers short grand prix as i said just like we always used to do so not no big deal and sure i think we can make tests you know better and we should change them around a bit it's better for the horses training. It's yeah, it's exciting. I can't believe we're already looking ahead to to Christmas, but it'll be coming around soon enough. And um, it's nice to be after a sort of summer of championships and things to be looking to the next. Always nice to be looking forward to the next big next big show. What's on the future in terms of the sport and and things? So, Richard, thank you very very much for coming on. It has been brilliant to talk to you. Fascinating to talk to you and wishing you all the very best um, as you prepare towards towards London. Well, thank you very much. Lovely to chat to you and I'll look forward to seeing everybody at London and obviously you can do all your Christmas shopping there as well. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you, Richard. Thank you very much. I am joined now by my colleague Catherine Austin to review the Mars Maryland Five Star, which took place last week. And I was lucky enough to be there. Catherine was watching at home. Something about a five star, Catherine. It's always, always fun to be following it, however you're doing that. Absolutely. I was very jealous of you going out there and I want to, I almost want to interview you about it really. But even watching it from home, yes, you know, five star is five star. It is the most elite level of eventing and therefore anyone interested in eventing really needs to, to join in and they do and they watch it. And it was, yeah, a very interesting competition. Yeah, it really was. What do you want to know, Catherine? What, uh, if we were just having a chat, what would, uh, before we get into the results and who did well and who impressed us, if you, we were just having a chat, what what would you uh, what would you want to know about my week at Maryland? Well, it's obviously a beautiful venue, but is it? This is a cool thing, Pippa. You have been to all the world's five stars, haha. Yes, I have. Where does it rank in as a venue within those? Oh, interesting question. So in some ways, it's quite similar to Kentucky in the sense that it has some permanent facilities. Um, mm -hmm. that it has the permanent arenas um, in, a, in a way which not on the same scale as the Kentucky Horse Park, but it's a race course. Um, and so they've got some permanent grandstands and the main arena is on a surface. They've got those permanent warm ups as well and sort of just infrastructure, you know, buildings, real buildings, yep. not just tents, um, which makes it maybe more like Kentucky the badminton and burley and a sense of a huge amount of space that you get everywhere in america like when you drive around in america you're just like oh look there's six or twelve feet of wasted grass in front of every single house which uh, we'd call a front garden and we'd fence in in this country but in america there's so much space they're just not bothered they just sort of leave it there and mow it and it had very much that sense of being a big area that you get at kentucky and because it looks like a parkland event you know like a badminton a burley in that respect as opposed to a poe or a lemoulin which feel quite different to that yeah and the cross country is probably is a bit more maybe somewhere between Kentucky and Babington and Burley from that point of view. The um, Kentucky is such a manicured part. Babington and Burley, you know, those stately home venues, very beautiful in their own way. And I think actually the way the course was decorated was somewhere in between those two as well. Like one of the things I think that makes Babington's course, and we talked about this after Babington and Kentucky, I think on the podcast, that makes Babington's lines frightening is that the course can be quite raw. They don't put a lot of flowers or decoration on it. And Kentucky is lots and lots of flowers, beautifully done. And this was almost somewhere 
somewhere in between the two. Like some of the fences had a lot of flowers and then you'd suddenly get this sort of enormous table or log pile and you that felt very European in some ways. Yes, yeah, I, I, that's interesting. Because you were there, you have more of an emotional attachment to the event than I do. I've never been and I've only watched it on the live stream. And I think that you might strongly disagree with what I'm about to say next, which is that for me, while it was very enjoyable to watch, it almost felt like a showcase of a five star rather than a competition. Do you know what I mean? I do. It was a small field. And I think that's something obviously that we sort of see at showcase events. And there's an interesting debate around how many competitors is the right number for a good day's sport. There was a supporting three star as well from the point of view of spectators on site. And indeed, you know, that was available in some parts of the world to watch as well. It was a very small field. And it was sometimes when there's a small field, we say, well, they did have to beat the best anyway. They beat the best riders in the world here. You know, there were some real top names there. You wouldn't say there were the top horses in the world there. There were some up and coming horses who I think will be the top five-star horses in the world over the next five years. But the top three were all first-time five-star horses. So that was interesting. And from the point of view of scores, you know, we didn't see those real low dressage scores in the low 20s that we've seen recently at uh, at some of the other five-stars. So from that point of view, I hate to say a lesser five star. It's an up and coming five star, maybe with those up and coming horses. It's interesting. There are, we have established, I think, that the seven annual five stars spread throughout the world are very different to each other in character and in in the nature of the competition that in, they involve. Is five star still the absolute pinnacle of achievement in eventing or has that evolved a bit I'm not sure, but what I don't want to happen in the world is for Badminton, Burley and Kentucky to be so far out on a limb that they are the ones that look out of context in a way because the other four or five stars are quite a bit softer than them, if you understand what I mean. It doesn't denigrate the performance and the achievement of anyone, any of them, because you can only beat who is there and jump the jumps that are there but it's quite a big question for the future it is a big question i could see this event moving towards the kentucky badminton burley class i think that adelaide i'm going to set slightly aside it's in a different hemisphere it's a very different kind of competition the field yeah. is quite different and let's be honest neither of us know as much about it as, uh, as as we do about the others and it's no. a long time since i've been there i think that Lemoulin and poe have settled in their place as as those european five stars their fields vary in size but they're generally getting a decent field somewhere between 35 and 50 and their courses are not the same as Babington Burley, but they are challenging in their own ways. And they had their own places in the season as well. Yeah. I think this event, the will is there for it to be a very strong cross-country course. That didn't happen this year. We can talk about that a bit more. But I think the will is there, certainly from Ian Stark as the course designer, um, to make it that. The prize money is more in the Babington and Burley Kentucky line Absolutely. than in the Lemoulin and Poe line. Yeah. You know, Tim Price won $100,000. I'll be interested to see where it goes, but I could see this one sort of joining the top tier. Um, Yeah, interesting. And we should talk about the people who actually obviously did really well. And you said that Tim Price won $100,000 for winning. Wow, Tim, what what an autumn. Yeah, Tim is on amazing form. So I actually uh, sat down with Tim on the Thursday to do an interview for Horse and Hound, a feature interview, by which time he, of course, hadn't won, but he had just won two world medals, world number one, one Buccalo. Yeah, absolutely. And then it just carried on. So yeah, he's having an an incredible, incredible autumn season. This is a coup de coeur du Daven. He's a young horse. Um, He's just 10. He was the youngest horse in the competition. owned by his breeder, Jean-Louis Stouffer. And yeah, he, you know, sometimes you say, oh, we didn't put a foot wrong. He did put a couple of feet wrong. Um, you know, he had a couple of mistakes in his dressage. He was a little green, but he also helped him out when he needed it. You know, Tim said that he stuffed up coming to the uh, the feature water fence and the horse found an extra leg and made a sensible decision. And, um, you know, that's the mark of a really good cross-country horse, which is what you need at Five Star. Yes, and I know so little about this horse. He's done so little that I can't wait to see him on on the the big stage with my own eyes next year. Very impressed by um, the US's Tammy Smith in coming second. I find her very inspiring. She's forty eight. She we say she's a grandmother, but then we I think we need to point out that she's only forty eight. She's not you know fifty eight sixty, but her 
her career has blossomed very quickly, really in the last few years. And here she is, having just um, been part of that silver medal winning US team at the World Championships. Here she is coming second in a five star on a different horse. And I think that's that's very cool and quite inspiring for people who haven't necessarily you know, done ponies, juniors, young riders win badminton when they're 25. You know? Absolutely. I mean, when Tammy was 19, she'd just left high school and had a baby. Um, you know, her, her daughter, Kaylorna, now, as you say, has her own child. So Tammy is a grandmother, but she did have Kaylorna when she was very young. Yeah. But, you know, she was a single mother struggling through her 20s, riding what she could for fun and to escape from work and and, and came to the sport seriously late. This horse, um, Donito, he's a little chestnut horse. There was some uh, uh, a little bit a little bit of the Coroway vibe about him um, right. <laughs> in, in some of the way that he jumped although a bit more rideability than Corey sometimes gives poor Sarah, Sarah Bullymore. But um, yeah, he's a cute horse, a cool horse. He broke his withers in January. So quite a comeback for him to come back and be second at his first five star. And Oliver Townend, I am so pleased that having not perhaps had the Burley and the Bretoni he would have liked, that he's finished his season on a very positive foot with a, a barnstorming performance to come third on the former Andrew Nicholson ride as is. I was fascinated by this because Oliver rode as is basically like he was a JA pony. And the horse had his ears pricked the whole time and appeared to absolutely love every second of it. And it's it's interesting, like in the same way, you could say the same for Tammy's career and for Oliver's performance on Alnaz's this weekend. There's more than one way to skin a cat. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, those top top three riders all very different, very different career progressions yeah he said the horse is pony like and terrier like you can uh, sort of give him a kick and say come on and he responds with his ears pricked he uh, he's a careful jumper but he's also got an incredible gallop Oliver said um he did a good test Mark Phillips actually said he thought he wasn't particularly generously marked um okay. so that's interesting that there could be a few more marks there without without even needing to improve if you know what I mean finished on his dressage score 18 seconds inside the time cross country <laughs> yeah um yeah the time was time was easy to get but that was that was impressive and he uh, he banked fence five um, i know <laughs> but, but did it well and was fine so. yeah well i said to oliver you know was he a bit green at the beginning oliver said well i'm not sure whether he was a bit green or he just thought it looked a bit wide um <laughs> but uh, jumped off again and uh, and got on with it I just wondered, I mean, this, you know, who knows, but I wondered whether as is might fit a role as a European horse for Oliver next year. I was thinking about his absolute top horses because I've always thought that the next one of his really, really special ones, um, and this is slightly not counting the Cornton stud horses that from whom he became rider this year because I don't know them so well, but that Cooley Rosalind might be the next superstar. But you just wonder whether as is, if he can improve his dressage, if he can finish on his dressage score here and he won't have, wouldn't have to do a five star any Europeans whether he might slot into that role anyway not yeah I think about now really but I it occurred to me yep I think that's a good point I personally I'm not sure we'll see Ballamore class on a team again I think to come back from having as many mm. fences down as he did at the Worlds would be tough and it's not he's rarely had that many fences down but he's rarely been a horse he's done that's, a lot of miles he he's has done a lot in his life um so I, I don't I, I think his team days might be over I might be wrong um but yeah I think this horse is a little further on in his career than uh, than the lovely Cooley Rosalind so yes I could absolutely see him being a, a team horse for next year and of course in a way he is a Cornton stud horse although they haven't bred him because he belongs to Sir yes. John Peace who heads up that that sort of operation for the Peace family Yes, of course, you're completely right. Um, I just was thinking of the lovely French horses that that's, um, they have done so well with this year, whereas this horse they bought earlier this season from Libby Seller, who owns so many of Andrew Nicholson's great horses. Yeah, and uh, Oliver was uh, was strongly emphasising how uh, you know how much it means to him to, to do well for the court and stuff for that new job. He said, I haven't had a job since I was 21. Um, so uh, <laughs> I think uh, being, being employed is, uh, is is new to Oliver, but uh, certainly certainly seems to be suiting him if this weekend's anything to go by. <laughs> yes, and of course we had one other Brit out there, Harry Mead and Superstition, who finished on their dressage score but perhaps it wasn't quite the dressage score they would have liked no this was really unfortunate um so harry had uh, a planned carefully planned dressage warm-up and um, that was 
all sort of approved by the officials. He wanted to, the, the riders had a limited time within the white practice boards and Harry wanted to take that time at a slightly different time to uh, to, to what was the standard and that had all been approved by the officials. Um, but uh, there was then a rejection to Harry doing that when someone saw him doing it. There wasn't really time to, to, to sort that out properly so that he could have his time in the practice boards and superstition is a very sensitive horse and that disruption to his warm-up affected him very badly and when he came into the dressage arena you could see that he is such a fancy horse fancy mover but he was so unsettled I mean I, I thought at one point Harry wasn't gonna be able to get him out of the arena when the test was really? over yeah. yeah he was so upset it was sad to see and um, and it's such a long way and so much money for it, it not to go right absolutely in that respect. and you know if he'd done the test he did last year he would have been right up there in the top three and um, I don't think we've seen the best of Harry in this horse you know they've they've been in the top 10 at three five stars and um, I really hope Harry can uh, can 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 bring it it's hard to say bring it all together they've had three great results but yes if he could if he could do a test in the in the, in the high 20s or even mid 20s and, and go double clear they definitely have a podium finish at five star in them but he was so impressive in all the jumping phases and um, you know cross country he was absolutely playing and and, and show jumped clear as well so so everything crossed that they can uh, they can get that dressage back on track and this experience doesn't upset him too much for the future it was obviously an interesting an interesting weekend for you i mean some of good american performances um from as you say some older horses who we may not see again the likes of harbor pilots who was retired to hannah sue I know it's Hannah Sue Burnett, but she's now Hannah Sue Holberg, has done so many five stars on. Lillian Hurd's LCC Barnaby, Philip Dutton Z, but also the likes of Jenny Brannigan, fifth on FE, FE Lifestyle. That's pretty encouraging for the Americans, I would have thought. Yeah, definitely. That's a 12-year-old horse and, and not such a young horse, but uh, I think in terms of riders who are coming through, I was yes. really impressed by Ali Knowles as well. Um, she finished eighth on Morsewood. She was third after dressage and that was stepping into a bit of a new league for her. Um, neat chestnut horse. He was produced in Britain by Piggy March and Susie, Susie Berry. Went to a young rider, Euros for Susie. Um, I think this might be one of the horses that Jennifer Saunders owns with Piggy back in the day. Oh, you can look that up while I talk a bit mm. more about her. Ali has a, uh, a nearly two-year-old daughter um, called Addy. So she's uh, a rider who's had that time out and had to uh, pick up and get her career back on track after having that time out to have a baby. And she said herself she's green at the level. You know, she uh, she had some time for cross country, which was unusual. But she said, you know, I'm getting faster. I'm getting there. She only had one show jump down. Um, and I just think if you can be putting a dressage score in the high 20s on the board like that and make a real improvement on your previous score you know you're going somewhere and it might not be with this horse she this is her first five star horse I think or second she needs to you know she needs mileage yes doesn't everybody but I'm I'm very pleased for eventing in America that they have the the nation as a whole has had a very successful end to their season it's encouraging and we need them to be big players on the world stage Absolutely, definitely. And uh, I really enjoyed speaking to some of the uh, the riders further down the leaderboard as well, who had uh, interesting, interesting stories, interesting things to say. Zoe Crawford was one who uh, has caught the eye a few times with her good cross country with the Irish sport horse mare KEC Zara. Um, they're a very good cross country combination, not so great in the dressage, but Zoe did her very first event ever on this horse when she was 18. <laughs> so their first event. So cool. Yeah, Zoe's first event and Zara's first event. Zoe's the person, Zara's the horse. Um, so, uh, and have made it all the way through to, to five star. So they're a fun combination to follow, finished 13th. By the way, I think I was wrong about Mooreswood being owned by Jennifer Saunders, but he was certainly a collection. One of one of the horses that Piggy had at the time when she was riding for Jennifer Saunders, but he was owned by Susie Wood, who was a long established owner of Piggy's. Good. Well, I'm glad we've straightened that out. And, uh, <laughs> Take now, no notice of me, basically. <laughs> no, no. You have uh, have all the uh, have all the thoughts there. Will Coleman as well. Another of those US riders doing well in in sixth, and another member of that uh, silver medal winning world team. He was riding Don Dante this time. Um, so, as you say, good to see that American strength in depth building on the horse and uh, horse and rider power side. Yes, and the only other person I'll mention is Astier Nicola, Frenchman, who had sadly had a run out because otherwise, I mean, with a good dressage score and a clear show jumping around, he'd been well up there. Interestingly, he managed to have a run out or a stop 
and still make the time across country. Yeah, as well, Woods Boffman, who was the dressage leader, mm. another American rider, up and coming rider, um, was only two seconds over having a stop as well. Um, his say uh, la vie was very exuberant across country and his stride just gets longer and longer. And Woods was talking before the cross country about how he's tried to play with the tack and with his tactics to sort that out. And he said afterwards, still more homework to do, basically, which uh, is something he's going to have to tackle because he is a, a, a really good dressage horse, but uh, just getting away from Woods a bit cross country at the moment. And I remember him doing the same at Burley. Yeah, absolutely. Work, work there to do for Woods, but uh, credit to him for, for leading the dressage. Anyway, one last thing we should talk about, Catherine, and that was the time cross-country. More than half the field inside the time. That's pretty unusual at a five-star, not something I've ever seen before. It is, and I was interested to read in your report um, what the course designer Ian Stark said about that, because, of course, Ian does not set the time. The designer does not set the time. The track is wheeled by, the, you know, the TD and by the ground jury and, well, and by Ian, obviously, and, and it just is it corresponds to the length of the course what are your thoughts <laughs> yeah absolutely it's not a matter of judgment in terms of they don't say i think the time should be 11 minutes 30 it is a matter of judgment in terms of where they wheel um, and how mm. tight the lines are and ian said that he and the two tds all wheeled it within 20 meters of each other tim price said that he wheeled it about 200 meters shorter um okay which is not you know, if the time had been 15 seconds tighter, it would have been harder to make. There still would probably have been six or seven inside it, but maybe not 13. But 200 metres wouldn't make, wouldn't be 15 seconds, would it? Oh, well, that's what, uh, that's what Tim said, but... Okay, we'll I go would... with Tim. He knows a lot more than we do. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think the time was maybe, so possibly was wheeled on the lenient side. I also think the way the course was laid out, and this was something Harry Mead talked a lot about, it was a lot of straight lines. You know, the... There's yeah. a lot of running distance from place to place, um, coming down to big fences in a straight line, um, not a lot of setup maybe needed with today's, you know, the skill of today's horses and riders to back off a fence and jump it out of their stride. And so 11 minutes 30 is in the middle of the range of distance allowed for a five star between 11 and 12 minutes. It was at the top end of the maximum efforts allowed. I wonder whether the time could be brought down to 11 minutes and keep the maximum efforts that potentially would help a bit. Yes. I'm sure it's something that will be much discussed. I mean, it made for attractive pictures because the horses galloping very happily and a few of them looking kind of you know, having to be pulled off their line or any. Well, it was it, it, it did make it made attractive pictures and that does count for something. Absolutely. And Ian said, it. you know, that he thought it was a great day, that he was uh, almost moved to tears by uh, by watching the top riders. That it was brilliant riding. Um, and he said he would rather have a lot inside the time than have horses on the floor, which is a yeah. good point. And there were no falls in the five yes, star exactly and that that is that is a good point um but let's not make no falls the overriding objective of five star cross country absolutely and i think you know if five star is to be the all-round test time has to be part of that test and it wasn't this weekend yep so yeah, I'm sure we'll we'll see more more on that from uh, from Maryland, and they'll be hoping. I I would imagine they'll they will be working to see what they can do to to change that for. Uh, yes, and when we run, design, year. and build our five star pippo, it'll be perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, luckily we only have to write and talk about it. <laughs> what a relief. Well, it was a good weekend, and I I was very happy to, uh, to 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 reinstate my record of having been to all of the world's five stars, having uh, not got to Maryland last year for their inaugural year. And uh, thank you for joining me to review today, Catherine. Great pleasure. So I'm joined now by two members of our news team. We have our news editor Eleanor Jones. How are you doing, Eleanor? Yeah, all good, thank you. Sunday, we've got like a second summer going on here, which is happy days, although I've just clipped and, and suddenly now I'm having to, because I'm such a cold person, it's just like, oh, I hate not putting rugs on and I have to be tough and go, no, it's warm. <laughs> they don't need rugs. <laughs> yeah, it is sunny here today, but uh, there is a bit of a chill. I have to say I've got two jumpers on, so uh, <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's not maybe as warm as it looks if you're looking out the window. We also have with us our senior news writer, Becky Murray. How are you doing? Becky. 
Good, thank you. I really need to clip my horse. I mean, I, their hair is insane right now. <laughs> They're well prepped for winter. Yeah, it's uh, in Scotland, I imagine it's uh, starting to get really quite chilly. So uh, a good bit of clipping is needed. Absolutely. I've got the fire on full blast at the moment in the house. <laughs> <laughs> but what, what's so odd is if you do, I did a full clip the other day and my horse is a warm blood, but she's got, gets the hair probably not far off what yours have got, Becky. And you clip it all off and then there's literally like two bits of hair on the floor. So like, well, where did that inch thick coat go? <laughs> that never seems to happen with our horses. There always seems to be like a lot of hair. Maybe we just have particularly hairy horses. But the Connemara just seems to think he's being sent back to Connemara. Yeah. <laughs> the amount of hair he's growing. But... Well, on to the news. Becky, we are following up this week on a story which we covered on the podcast a couple of weeks ago about a proposal from the FEI's Independent Ethics and Wellbeing Commission to make double bridles optional in Grand Prix dressage and there's been some more discussion about this since we last spoke and not least there's been some reaction from the FEI dressage committee what do they say Becky? Well the FEI told me that the dressage committee has discussed the proposals including the fact that double bridles are optional up to CDI two-star level already and this was something that was brought in in 2019 and they reflected on that change and said that that was down to a progression level in the skills of the athlete and training of the horse from low and medium level to the highest level of performance. And based on this, the FEI dressage committee is in favour of keeping the double bridle compulsory at the upper levels. And you also have uh, been speaking to David Hunt from the International Dressage Trainers Club. He's elaborated a little bit on, on their position. Can you give us a rundown of what he said? Yes, so David has sort of highlighted they believe that we're talking about a sport issue and not a welfare issue. He believes that to make double bridles optional at the top level is a slippery slope and he highlighted that riding in a double bridle and spurs is traditional and very skillful and he's concerned that it'd be sort of dumbing down the top level of competition. He said that the dressage trainers club's constantly making sure it has welfare at it you know the main objective and there's already things in place to sort of protect against misuse so he is very much in favor that this proposal doesn't go ahead and i thought it was quite interesting that he also said that that this isn't a welfare issue it's a sport issue that if it was a welfare issue we shouldn't be making double bridles optional we should be banning them which obviously no one's uh, no one's suggesting but that uh, if 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 it's sort of about making them optional that that's not a welfare issue it's a sport issue i thought that was an interesting comment um, and becky you've also spoken to a number of riders about this can you give us an idea about sort of some of the range of views that we're getting there from from real top riders as well Yes, so Dane Rollins, who is on the um, International Dressage Trainers Club board, he believes it's a sport issue and, you know, he said the epitome of riding International Grand Prix is to produce a horse to the highest standards with the classical tack. He says he has a Grand Prix horse that goes better in a snaffle than a double and it's harder to ride in a double sometimes, but again, he believes it's not a welfare issue. I spoke to also Laura Tomlinson, who sort of said it's not a black and white issue. She touched on there's the welfare side, the sport side and the traditional side. Um, she also pointed out that there are horses, of course, who are more comfortable in a snaffle because they're mouth shaped. And she said she has a horse that prefers a snaffle. But she's not sure whether, you know, this change should be brought in or not. However, she does think it is something that's good to debate and discuss. Well, that's uh, it's interesting to see that sort of range of range of views from riders there, and I know there were a few more that you spoke to who are in the story that's in the magazine. If people want to to pick that up and and have a read, I expect we'll hear more on this and uh, see whether that proposal comes to anything. Becky, thank you, Eleanor. You are going to tell us a bit about an event which happened last week called Better Beginnings, I believe. What was this all about? What was the aim and sort of background to that event? Yeah, so it's something I find really, really interesting anyway. Um, uh, you know, how do we give young horses the best possible start in life um, to ensure they can go on to, to have good lives, basically? And, and that was the aim, focusing on management, uh, even from before they're conceived to when they're two years old, what they uh, described as the vital first two years. Because, uh, of course, if you get that health and welfare and, and everything right for the from from 
before birth to the to two year olds, then you've got a foundation then hopefully to have the best chance of, of sound, straight, healthy, happy horses uh, for a long time into the future. And Jenny Lauriston Clark, who of course is a four-time Olympian, leading breeder and trainer, she was one of the speakers at the uh, at, at this discussion. What sort of thing did she cover? So her her big thing is is about sustainability really of horses, so that the horse is suitable for, can be trained for, and and sustain the level you consider it to to be bred for. So what's important is this is not just for elite horses. These the first two years and and the management of them are as crucial whether you're breeding a a, a very low level leisure horse or an Olympic horse. You know it's it's all about that it can do what it's supposed to do if that makes sense so uh, she talked about um varied work once horses have been backed and are in training variety of surface hill works jumping pole work you know all that sort of thing but she's saying it, it the breeding decisions are so important you know pay attention to straightness confirmation and then if you get the next steps right which you know is a lot easier to say than it is to do the, the feeding the nutrition you can hopefully have a, a quality horse that will have a long life and as she said horses shouldn't be retiring at 10. Mm, I think that's really interesting and, and, and valid point and what other topics came up I know there was a lot but uh, perhaps pick out one or two particularly interesting areas to give us a bit of detail on. Yeah, I mean, very difficult to, to pick out a few because I could have written 8,000 words on this <laughs> if I'd had space. Um, but one thing I thought was really interesting and important was the earlier farriery intervention. So uh, we, they, we heard from Ben Benson, who is the lead farrier at two Olympics, and he's saying, you know, how passionate he is about spreading the, the message on how important good farrier is from the start and he's saying you should have vital, the foal is, is assessed by a vet and a farrier in the first 24 hours. Um, to because it, he's saying you know foals feet should be trimmed within the first couple of weeks and then every few weeks until the horse is 18 months old because we all know how you know even as adult horses a half inch of foot balance being off can have such big effects everywhere else but of course if the foal is you know its growth plates are still open and uh, millimeters of, of growth that's in balance can make all the difference and then if you get that right you're more likely to have a sound horse in 15 20 years time Mm. Great. Well, thank you, Eleanor. And you can read more about the uh, the other speakers from that event also in the magazine. Uh, Becky, coming back to you, you are all about bridles this week um, because you've also been covering some new research on noseband tightness. What was involved in this research? Well, this is part of a pilot launched by Equestrian Canada, which we actually covered back in January. And the view was implementing a rule that reflects scientific recommendations that a noseband should not be tight enough to prevent the, pl the placement of two adult fingers between the noseband and the front, the frontal nasal plane. So Equestrian Canada had stewards measure the tightness of 551 nosebands at 32 competitions using a taper gauge tool. And this precisely measures the space between the noseband and the nasal plane. They also conducted a survey of more than 1,500 members and had um, researchers review this data. Mm, and what did they find out? Of the 551 measurements taken, 71% passed the two-finger measurement sort of test, 19% passed a one centimetre, which they've said is the equivalent of one finger, and 10% were too tight to fit the taper gauge. And of the survey respondents, only 181 professional riders felt over-tightened nosebands were a welfare issue compared to 613 amateur competitors who responded. Mm, really interesting to see those, those differences in, in attitudes. What conclusions did the researchers draw? Well, they said that misinformation and misunderstanding of noseband research was evident and this indicated a need for the education of riders and coaches on the importance of noseband fit and the consequences of over-tightened nosebands. They said making nosebands optional in disciplines that currently require them was suggested, um, but despite differing viewpoints, there was a clear desire to improve equine quality of life. So going forward, Equestrian Canada now has submitted a rule change proposal to its National Rules Committee, which we're still waiting to hear what that pr uh, proposal is, but hopefully we will hear more on that soon. Mm. 
And interesting because often uh, rules that, that start in one country can end up spreading more internationally to, to Britain or Europe and, uh, and sometimes end up in FEI rules as well. So it's always worth us uh, keeping an eye on rules all the way around the world. So thank you very much for that, Becky. And thank you to Eleanor for joining us today too. Dr Gemma Pearson is Director of Equine Behaviour for the Horse Trust. She is a qualified veterinary equine behaviourist who splits her time between seeing clinical behaviour cases at the University of Edinburgh's Equine Hospital and ongoing research on this topic. So in this episode, we're going to talk about classical conditioning. This, of course, is a behaviourist term, but it's really simple. We all know this as Pavlov's dogs. So Pavlov would ring a bell and then he would feed his dogs. And after he repeated this several times, Every time he started to ring the bell, the dogs would associate that with food. So they would start to salivate. That's the one that everyone remembers. That's your physiological response. But what our dogs would also do is they would have an emotional response. So when he rang the bell, even if there was no food present, the dogs would come to the front of the kennel. Their ears would be pricked. They would wag their tails because they were anticipating something nice. So exactly the same happens in horses. Classical conditioning is all about predicting what is going to happen next. The horse doesn't have any control over whether it happens or not, but it allows it to predict. So let's think about a few different scenarios where this might occur with horses. So first of all, when horses interact with each other, if another horse puts its ears back and bears its teeth, then the horse that it's doing that towards knows that it may be followed through with a bite or a kick. So that horse can then move away and avoid any conflict. So you can predict what another horse might do. And that means you can avoid conflict within the herd. A lot of natural horsemanship is based on classical conditioning. You know, people will have a horse cantering around them and then they will tilt their head and the horse yields its hindquarters and canters in towards them. Well, that doesn't happen the first time you put a young, naive horse, you know, in an arena. You start off using, you know, the rope and the carrot stick to move the hindquarters away. But because each time you use more and more of a subtle response, the horse will respond to that more and more subtle response. So moving on to riding, classical conditioning is really important because with a very young horse when we're first backing them, we're going to have to use our reins and our legs to cue the horse to explain what it is that we want. But if we're doing a dressage test, you know, if we're doing medium trot across the arena, we don't want to be having to use our hands and our legs. We want everything to look light and harmonious. And we often talk about this invisible connection, this harmony between horse and rider, whereby the horse appears to know what's in the rider's mind without anyone being able to see it visually. And this, of course, is fantastic. This is what we want to do. But this happens through classical conditioning. So this is where it's really important to get the order of things right. So let's go back to the example of medium trot. You want your horse to do medium trot, so you train it using a leg cue first of all. The horse is now trained to do medium trot across the diagonal. But as we've said, you don't want to do that when the judge is there, when you're in a dressage test. So what you then do is you give a postural cue and then you use your legs. And if you always do it in that order, a little bit like Pavlov, you know, he didn't feed the dogs and then ring the bell. You have to ring the bell and then feed the dogs. If you always give a postural cue and quickly follow it up with a leg cue, you'd be amazed how quickly the horse will start responding to that postural cue and you don't need to use your legs at all. And because of that, you then can get more and more subtle in the postural cue until it looks invisible. It looks magical. So that's where we can use classical conditioning to our advantage when we're training horses. But what about when it goes wrong? Because horses are very good at picking up on things that we might not do. There's actually a story of a horse called Clever Hands um, about 120 years ago now. And everyone thought that this horse could count because whenever they asked him to do, you know, what's two plus two, he would tap four times with his hoof. And then, of course, he got a small food reward. So everyone assumed that this horse was very intelligent. But what they actually realised over time was that if the person that asked him the question didn't know the answer themselves, he just kept pawing. He just kept tapping with his hoof. And that is because what he was actually doing was picking up on these really tiny cues from people in the audience. And whenever he got to the right number of taps, everyone would stare more intensely. They would hold their breath slightly. They would tilt their heads to see whether he would stop or not. 
And he had learned through trial and error learning that if he stopped whenever they started to, you know, offer these behaviours, he got a food reward. So sadly, he wasn't quite as intelligent as we like. So that's an example as to just how subtle a cue a horse can pick up on and learn to predict what's going to happen next. Now, I said, let's think about this in terms of the ridden horse and when things might go wrong. So I'm sure most of us have that one spooky corner in the arena that horses are not keen to go into. And of course, what we do is when we're riding down the long side towards that arena, you think, oh, the horse might spook. They might try and drift away from the corner. So you try and hold them a little bit tighter. You might put a little bit more leg on to try and prevent that happening. But let's look at this from the horse's perspective. So the horse, for whatever reason, and, you know, we've mentioned in another episode about non-associative learning that the horse may be scared of things that we don't believe they should be, but they are the same as I don't believe people should be scared of spiders, but they are. So the horse finds that corner a little bit scary. But what happens is every time that horse approaches that corner, the rider starts to get a little bit tighter in their body. They might hold the reins a bit tighter and they might use a little bit more leg. So the horse now not only finds that corner a little bit scary, but they also associate it with the rider putting more pressure on them. So a really simple thing to do is just to flip this on its head, whereby you ride into the corner and you just stop there and give the horse a scratch. You could even give them a treat if you want. And, you know, then you go off and you may work the horse. And when the horse is ready to have a bit of a rest again, after another five, 10 minutes, you come back into that corner. You don't have to go really deep into it, but just anywhere near that corner is where the horse gets to rest and relax. And then at the end of the session, rather than stopping in the center of the arena, why not go into that corner to get off and lead your horse back? If you do that, that horse starts to associate that corner with good things happening, with calmness and relaxation. And then you'll find the horse is almost pulling you into the corner and not spooky anymore. Hopefully you enjoy that and look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Thank you, Gemma. Next week, Gemma will be back to talk about rewards and consequences in training horses. Our interview will be with maths teacher turned Irish Nations Cup rider Jessica Burke, fresh from her amazing hat trick at Hoys. And of course, we'll look at all the week's news as normal. Talk to you then. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.